Well, welcome to The Professor and The Hack. Uh, with me, I'm The Hack, Hugh Rimmington. The Professor, of course, is uh, Network 10 political editor Peter Van Onselen. Peter, how are your nerves? My nerves? Well, I'm fine. I haven't got any skin in the game. I don't care what happens in the sense that <laughs> it's it's an interesting story either way. And I can also see the, the value as well as the pitfalls on, on both sides on this. But, you know, I, I'm missing you, Hugh. I, I know you're in Sydney today. I'm down here in Canberra. This is the first time we've done this from afar. Indeed. Yeah. I, when I say nerves, I'm not really thinking that you've got, as you say, skin <laughs> in the game one side or the other. But just by the end of it, there is that sense of, God, make it stop. Um, the only problem with that, though, don't you agree, is that, and you've covered this much longer than I have, that it's the other side of the election, particularly obviously a change of government, but in the case of even if the Liberals and Nationals get over the line because there's so many changes that will naturally have to abound anyway with retirements and Morrison being relatively new, you're busy for a while because as much happens after as happens before. And whatever happens, there are enormous questions. In fact, more questions, oddly enough, I think, if uh, Scott Morrison was to win against the odds. Very true because uh, he then looks around and goes, oh, well, we didn't expect that. Um, how, do we, how do we, you know, sort do of Do all the things we've said we're going to do. And also make it, well, they, didn't, they haven't actually offered to make, do that many <laughs> things, true, but, but, uh, but how do we actually bind it all together? How do we, they bind up the wounds? You know, we've seen just in the last few days uh, uh, Barnaby Joyce having a um, gratuitous crack at Jim Molan, uh, the New South Wales Senator, oh, let, let me jump in though, Hugh. I mean, Please don't get do. me wrong. Why make a bad situation worse is the point there. But Jim Molan and, and his campaign for people to vote below the line, I mean, seriously, I get that he's a bit upset that he landed the unwinnable fourth spot on the ticket. Having said that, that's the same spot he was in previously. It was only the whole citizenship drama that saw him climb further up the ticket uh, and therefore become a senator by accident almost. But then on top of that... This whole campaign has got no chance. I, I, I will be staggered if Jim Molan has, you know, the chance of a snowflake in hell of actually getting himself elected with this campaign. All it is is a distraction. And, yes, I guess Barnaby's added to that by whacking the distraction. It's interesting, though, because for many people, Jim Molan is a person of significant uh, a life of service and he has policy ideas. He's definitely from the right. Uh, he is a former... General, he he served in Iraq where he controlled the war for not just the Australian troops, but in fact was running it as operational chief for all the troops. And he was the guy who drew up the plan for Operation mm. Sovereign Borders. So he's not an insignificant figure, oh. and better known than the people that he you know that, that got in on the line ahead of him. Oh, I don't disagree with that. Don't get me wrong. It's it's the difference between how sort of unrealistic this campaign is versus perhaps the understandable situation that he found himself in, where someone of of merit like himself is frustrated by people with better factional connections getting themselves further up the ticket. But once it happens, then it is what it is. You know, this this campaign is neither going to be successful nor is helpful writ large because of the divisions that it causes. And I remember reading the other day that this, if anything, is potentially a problem even ironically for Tony Abbott because it's splitting volunteers and how they operate uh, in that key part of Sydney. And, of course, Abbott was one of Jim Molan's biggest advocates, yet Molan's decision to do what he's doing may well harm Tony Abbott in what's a difficult fight for him. Indeed, yet we're talking about it, uh, and yet we we plainly can recognise that the caravan is going to move on from Jim Molan, whether he likes it or not. Uh, the real game is still there as we speak to be won. We've had the final big formal set-piece pitches from uh, Scott Morrison choosing to go to the National Press Club once again on his own. 
and uh, Bill Shorten, the imagery of him in Blacktown back in the uh, the countryside where Gough Whitlam did his big It's Time rally mm. and uh, with a mass of people behind him all wearing the red T-shirts. Didn't look too triumphalist? I thought it did look a little bit too triumphalist, but I was more critical of it for lack of originality. I understand that Labor loves its history, but uh, originality is what Gough Whitlam did uh, when he had that rally in Blacktown. Originality is what Paul Keating had when he went and did that infamous, or famous, I should say, Redfern speech. Uh, And there were plenty of moments of it for Bob Hawke as well. Why not be original, Bill Shorten? You know, if this is such a totemic moment, why try to copy great moments from the past? Create your own great moment. That would be be my urging to him. Yeah, there's a great old line which is not, do what the greats did, seek what they sought. And uh, in a way, Bill Shorten there on your description is doing what they did rather than seeking what they sought, which is to brand yeah. it entirely in, in and a And it tends way. to be a sign, doesn't it, that he's perhaps not in their league, win or lose. I, I, I don't say that to be nasty. I say that, I think, as a reflection on, on, on a lot of modern politicians that uh, they tend to draw on the past too much, almost. Uh, learn from the past, but don't then just copy it. Uh, particularly not in this kind of way. But anyway, I'm I'm sure that those who were there thought it was great. And to your point originally, Hugh, I I do think it had a little bit of triumphalism about it, which is interesting because polls out now, which have been drip-fed out by News Corp, seat-by-seat Galaxy polls, I don't know if you've had a chance to see them, but they're quite weak for Labor, surprisingly so. Seats like Reid, for example, where Labor tells me that they're doing much better than what this published Galaxy poll suggests. Well, the published Galaxy poll has them behind 48 to 52. Now, if they're not winning Reid, I can't see them getting much of a majority. It's interesting. I always think back to the uh, 1992 British election uh, when there'd been huge ructions in the Conservative Party. Margaret Thatcher had been torn down from her pedestal. It had been bloody and deeply painful for everyone in Conservative politics in Britain. And they had put up... um, this bland character, John Major, had come through as the kind of compromise uh, yes. candidate. And uh, when they went to that election, Labor had been out since the late 1970s uh, when Thatcher's revolution began. And they absolutely knew this was their time. And they was that had, Kinnock? It was, or am I getting it, it that was the Welshman, Neil Kinnock. Mm. And he had his final uh, big event in Sheffield. I was reporting in Britain at the time. And it, it, it a huge stage lots of music and lights and and out he came. They had this cheering that happened when uh, Neil Kinnock walked up on stage and the cheering and the applause lasted so long that all Kinnock could do, he couldn't silence it, so he just had to say, he kept repeating, well, all right, well, all right, well, all right. And it looked stupid and triumphalist. And a few days later, John Major was elected. <laughs> you know, sometimes people just like it dull. And if the polls maybe maybe just picking up that a little bit, I don't know. Yeah, look, I mean, I still think Labor's going to win, but those polls are interesting. I'll tell you what, we'll no doubt get to this, but the number of people that have pre-polled, of course, is interesting also. If, if the polls have been getting tighter, that doesn't necessarily help the coalition if a lot of those people have voted so much earlier. But the other moment in history, Hugh, that I think is worth reflecting on on the eve of this election... We all remember John Houston losing the 93 election. We all know it's been described as the unlosable election. And yes, we all know that he ran a big target strategy, which is probably the last big target strategy since the one that we're now seeing from Bill Shorten. But what I remember from the night, I remember the walk that John Houston had to do uh, from the entry point all the way up to the podium. And he looked stunned. He was 
stunned. He didn't only lose the election, but I believe he went backwards, or at least at the start of the count they went backwards. And he really was in a semi-state of shock because he had spent, you know, the best part of three years way ahead in the polls. Uh, They did turn just before the end of the year, just ahead of the March or February as it was election in 93. But still, he was shocked. You know, they, they thought they had this one. And as I say, I think Bill Shorten gets over the line. But if he doesn't, he's going to look shocked like John Hewson um, because this will be the football equivalent of the try after the siren, Hugh. They Absolutely. have not had a poll that they're in front on for I think something like 84 consecutive polls all up, well over 50 from the one organisation of news poll, years on end. It's extraordinary. Try after the siren. It's a good image, isn't it? And but of course, it can happen. And and Mitt Romney went, you know, to election night 2012 against Barack Obama, completely convinced that all the polling, mm. so far as he was satisfied, all, all their own internal polling was that he was going to win that election and be named that night the president of the United States. And uh, it went the other way. And uh, again, that that sort of what happened to the script moment. Are we going to have one of those? But- well, and let's note this, actually. Uh, I wonder whether there's some nervous people at Sportsbet. I don't like to promote a betting agency necessarily, but they've paid out uh, everyone that bet on Labor. They did that this morning. I'm surprised... Well, this morning when we're recording this, I'm surprised by that, uh, for them to do that a matter of days out from the election. Sure, disproportionately, a lot of people have been putting money on Labor, but the polling's tight, you know, whether they get there or not. I would have thought it was close enough to wait and see rather than do a payout. And here's an interesting point. Uh, there was a polling agent, a betting agency, I should say, in the US. I don't remember the name of it. It paid out on Hillary Clinton just ahead of the election there against Donald Trump to someone that earned, well, I think writ large, but in particular they paid out a million-dollar bet, uh, as, I, as I saw online, that was helpfully forwarded to me by somebody in the coalition that saw me tweeting earlier uh, about what Sports Pet did. Sometimes these batting agencies are not quite as bright as they think they are, it would seem. <laughs> uh, so what about the final pitches? I, I'm sort of looking at it very closely, and it, it's, it's really come from Scott Morrison down to um, these guys are after your money, they will tax you more, we'll tax you less. Uh, th- that's plainly where the strength is, is a, is, is a hip pocket argument, I suppose, from uh, Morrison more than anything. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's there's there's a real sense from the Morrison campaign that it's hip pocket. I think, as you say, and and coupled in with that, and I don't mean this as pejoratively as it sounds, but it is a a selfish argument at one level. You know, you are better off under us vis a vis things like tax cuts and less, uh, you know, less you know, um, build up of 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 government coffers via removal of tax concessions. He calls it tax increases, of course, for Labor. That's the argument. Uh, And I guess coupled with that, in fairness to the coalition, is the idea, whether it's right or wrong, that they're the better economic managers. The Labor argument is actually much more of an argument for change, which is why it's so interesting that the Labor leader isn't, if you like, an inspirational figure, because the message in the campaign kind of is, you know, if you buy into it, they're saying they're going to have serious action on climate change. They're going to improve fairness uh, in the structure, the tax structure of the Australian society. So I can understand where all of that comes from, from a sort of it's time principle and hence the copying of Gough Whitlam. But Bill Shorten isn't the figure for change like that, the way that Gough Whitlam was or indeed the way that Bob Hawke was, or in his time, even though Australians found him out pretty quickly, the way that Kevin Rudd was in 2007. Yeah, it was interesting, uh, the messianic 
tone that uh, Bill Shorten tried to get. I don't want to be mean to him, by the way. I think he was he's performed in that final thing as best as you could. I don't think he he could have been like fully triumphalist. He wasn't. He was keeping it. He was trying to you know thread the eye of the needle between giving the the crowd who'd gone there to the hall what they wanted, which was a sense of big G up for all the efforts they'd made as volunteers and true believers and so on. But at the same time, look as if he he was you know he hadn't got ahead of himself. But he did use uh, an interesting sentence. He said, "Go forth from here." Not language you generally hear in conversation. Go forth from here, he said, and tell people you're voting Labour so you can look your children and your grandchildren in the eye because we're going to do something on climate change. Um, there was that a little bit of the Old Testament or perhaps the New Testament working its way into uh, into the language. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, very, uh, well, attempted inspiring rhetoric, but uh, not necessarily inspiring in the context of this campaign or, or of the leaders that we're dealing with. There's this incredible place where dreams are made. This is my dream. This is MasterChef. In this kitchen, anything is possible. MasterChef. This, this is going to be the best, the best year yet. Oh my gosh. This is insane. On 10. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack, episode nine. I think this will be our last one before the vote comes in. So the next time uh, we're all hopefully sitting and chatting and listening, we'll know what the result is. We'll have lots to uh, to pick through. One of the things which struck me, Peter, was that this campaign has been short and interrupted by holidays and so on. It suited Scott Morrison to have a, a, a brief, as short a campaign as possible. At the end of it, sometimes you know your prospective leaders much more deeply than you did at the start. And what struck me about this is that we don't. What we've got at the end of this campaign is what we imagined we had at the beginning. Backroom Bill against marketing man Morrison. So Bill has at all times, Bill Shorten has at all times chiefly looked like the kind of guy who spends his time in rooms with his sleeves rolled up, talking quietly and arranging deals... And Scott Morrison, the former marketing man, has been pretty good. He's performed as well as could be expected. He's been on his lines. He hasn't made any major blues that I've managed to pick up. So he's been doing the marketing. And so we've actually learned what we already knew about these two men. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, their history is fairly well known, even if Scott Morrison wasn't as well known a figure uh, the eight or nine months ago when he came into the top job. But him as the marketing man was something that very quickly was resonating about him in a negative way. I think he helped replace that during the campaign as actually just doing what marketing people do, which is a good job in the campaign. You know, whether you like or loathe him, he was very active, very energised. And as for Shorten, he's certainly known as a backroom operator, no doubt about that, even though he's spent years now trying to move away from that. And in fairness to him, he's a very consensus-orientated leader. Um, But that's not what resonates about him, is it? It's the backroom operator versus the backroom operator, Uh, in Shorten's case, coming from a union background, in Morrison's case, coming from a marketing background. How do you think... um, I'm very conscious, again, you know, history does tell us something. If you go back to the 1990 election, uh, that was one where Andrew Peacock's uh, coalition 
got more of the popular vote than uh, Bob Hawke uh, when he was... That was the last time Hawke uh, led the Labor Party to an election and indeed got the victory. The popular vote went with the coalition. But what emerged at that election was that the Labor machine, led in those days by Graham Richardson, uh, or overseen by Richardson, was brilliant at its marginal seat campaigning. Who do you think if this is going to be as tight as it appears it is going to be, is better at that sort of in-tight game to get the tough ones over the line? Oh, look, I definitely think at this point in time the better marginal seat campaigning party is the Labor Party. But having said that, they don't have the incumbent members of Parliament in a lot of those key marginal seats, do they? Because they're trying to win marginal seats off the government. So whether that factors each other out as an idea will be interesting to see. Uh, Back in the Howard years, you had the double effect. You had the sandbagging of seats with a better marginal seat structure and campaign and polling, and you had the local notable candidates who had built up a bit of a following. Now the Liberals aren't as good at it, neither are the Nationals. Labor is better at it. They're more mobilised, they've got more money, they've got more volunteers and a better ground game but they are up against the name recognition of local candidates. That That is a factor that does help the government and it'll be interesting to see if that is their saviour uh, on these sort of published polls that don't usually identify candidates but just identify parties. Butting up against that, Hugh, just very quickly, is that some of these once local notable candidates who are good campaigners do carry a taint from August. Uh, someone like a Michael Suka, for example, in the Victorian seat of Deakin, you know, he's got a 6% margin or thereabouts. He's regarded as a good local campaigner, a good local fundraiser, but he's been damaged and targeted because of his affiliation to trying to push for Peter Dutton in that coup. So those two things uh, go against each other. One of the things I think when you watch, you know, politics is how names get up there. They seem to be constantly in our lives Uh, particularly if you're paying attention to it, I suppose, you know, you get these large political figures that last for a period of time. But in fact, when you look at it, they come and go in a relatively short arc. Bill Shorten or Scott Morrison will be finished uh, after Saturday. Uh, Maybe Scott Morrison, if he loses narrowly, might might still go on for a bit, but whether you could ever see him coming back to be Prime Minister again is another thing. Now, both these men got in in 2007. It's not that long ago. It's only a dozen years ago. So as you look across the landscape... Uh, there will, of course, be new stars that rise. We we mentioned that in our last chat a little bit about who they might be, certainly on the right. But um, who do you see as being the figures who will effectively, in terms of their influence, exit the stage? Not those formerly who have resigned and retired, but those who will be deemed by events to be shown that the time has gone. Yeah, I mean, how do you mean that? You, so well, I mean, is Barnaby Joyce ever going to return to, you know, he, he'll presume to get re-elected, but yeah. will, he ever, will he ever return to anything where he's taken seriously as a, as a, as a, as a politician of great influence? Look, you've got to be careful uh, to write off people uh, in, in this game because he looks like he should be done, you know, with all the sort of damage that has been inflicted and then throw in the, the disunity and, and the problems that he's created more recently as well. But, you know, politicians recover. You know, a lot of people wouldn't have expected back in the day that someone like John Howard would recover either from his anti-Asian immigration remarks nor his political knifing at the hands of Andrew Peacock subsequent to that in 1989. But then, lo and behold, seven years later, he lingered and lingered and eventually 
not only did he get back and become Prime Minister, but he became Australia's second longest serving Prime Minister. So um, I wonder how many politicians whose careers are going through a rough patch think... John Howard did it. Well, and I think they think Winston Churchill in particular. I mean, <laughs> Tony Abbott's got a bust of Winston Churchill in his office. Uh, it's a little too large for his now small uh, parliamentary backbench's office. But, you know, I hear uh, from those much closer to him than I am that he really does see inspiration in that, you know, with his political comeback. So when we talk about huge names who may be shrunk uh, or shrunken figures, yeah. even if he gets elected back in again, there, there's a sense, I suppose, many people might have thought that he's he's had a, he had a near-death experience when he was Prime Minister before he had the uh, final death experience of being toppled as Prime Minister. Uh, might this election for him, even if he survives in Warringah, uh, be another near-death and, and, and he's, he carries that as a burden? Or... Does he have, as he seems to believe he have, has, another chapter of glory in him? Uh, well, he still thinks he does, uh, but he won't have that chapter of glory in him if he loses. And I think he's more likely to lose. Uh, I don't see him coming back once out of the parliament. You, little... you think he's gone? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, once out of the parliament, I think that's it, unless he... No, for... no, no, but I mean, you, you think he has gone on Moringa. I mean, he... Oh, I do, I do. I mean, look, you know... I don't. That's not a definitive prediction, but that is what everybody seems to be saying. So, if he's not gone, uh, then Liberals are doing a great job of managing expectations because behind the scenes they're saying that they think he's finished. I do hear he's had a bit of a comeback in the last part of the campaign, but from starting so far behind at the start of the campaign uh, that it's an issue. So, I think the wins might have just helped him a little bit just in the last couple of do weeks. Think, do you think he'll get there? If you had to be no, I, I don't know because I, I think it's so hard when you've got an, an unknown quantity uh, like an independent. It, it, you've got a bigger randomness factor that goes into it. People's patterns of behaviour. Uh, if if he had even a good Labour Party challenger, he wouldn't get in, and you know that he, he would still be safe where he was. It needed that independent, and when you've got an independent going, it, it's really hard to pick. I think there was a general sense on all sides that he was gone for all money a couple of weeks ago. I think the last couple of weeks has been better for him. People like John Howard have worked very hard for him. Uh, the get-up ad that was a total piece of idiocy about the uh, make, mocking him as a, as a surf lifesaver, I think probably gained him a little bit of sympathy. Um, I think he's, he's plainly, he's, he's on a knife's edge and anything can happen. But if he was to get back in again, I, I, I couldn't say I was completely surprised by that because they've done such a uh, relentless job of portraying Azali Stegall, the independent, as being essentially a stooge for the Labour Party. And uh, and I think that does resonate with lifelong Liberals, even if they do feel a bit cheesed off with them. Yeah. And well, I, we'll I, see. I mean, we'll all be, we'll all be extremely wise in, in not very long from now. <laughs> well, I, 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 it's interesting because I actually think, look, these are micro issues. I don't know how many votes they shift, but... I don't think Liberals, that Liberal voters I mean, who would have been willing to give Tony Abbott a more dignified exit than getting voted out if that's what happens on Saturday, those who might have wanted him to get a more dignified exit didn't want or wouldn't have wanted to hear the interview that he gave with The Australian, I believe it was with Troy Bramston, where he said he would be around, he hopes, for another 10 years and he takes inspiration from figures like Bernie Sanders... Uh, in the US fighting so deep into their lives as candidates. Now, that is interesting because I can imagine a lot of people that are saying, look, we'd rather he went out with a bit more dignity than losing his seat. You hear that and you think, 
geez, we're going to have to do it because he's never going to do it otherwise. And well, he's, he's 61 years old. Bernie Sanders, I think, is 77 or 78. And he's a young 61-year-old. <laughs> and Bernie Sanders looks his age. <laughs> so uh, so we'll, we'll, be, we'll be sitting here uh, in our dotage, Peter, you and I, uh, going, oh, that Tony Abbott, he's looking good this year. He'll be back. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Look, I, I think his time has come. But uh, if he fights to, you know, fights back from here, power to him. You know, it's it's the willingness to get his hands dirty uh, in the ground game of local campaigning that will have gotten him there if he does. And good luck to him. Well, let's take a look at the other side then and for a moment take a, um, a risk. Uh, probably on the betting markets, not too great a risk, and say that Labor gets in. Let's imagine a Labor government under mm-hmm. Bill Shorten. Shorten has displayed through his extended time as opposition leader a capacity to bring a team together and work with a team. So who do you think are going to be the stars, the engine room operators within a Bill Shorten Labor government if that is to be what we have come next week? Well, good question. I mean, they've actually got a lot of people in their team that have got quite a bit of experience because of the Rudd-Gillard government getting bundled out in just two terms and a surprising, perhaps, number of senior people from that era staying on. So, you know, Chris Bowen has been Treasurer before, albeit very briefly at the tail end of that previous Labor government, but he was Financial Services Minister before that for a relatively decent chunk of time. Uh, Tanya Plibersek was a Senior Cabinet Minister back then. Penny Wong certainly was a Senior Cabinet Minister during that period. And, And that's... And Anthony Albanese, of course, let's not forget him. Tony Burke, who is now the manager of opposition business and would become the leader of the House. He also was a cabinet minister throughout that entire period. That's the nucleus of their team, I think. And then you probably have to throw a Catherine King and a Mark Butler in the mix as people that have some key portfolios who have also been around the traps too. Jason Clare's been there for Jason a long time. Jason Clare's been there for a long time. He hasn't had the impact that some people thought he might. Richard Miles. Uh, Richard Miles has been mm. there too. I mean, look, these are names, you know, that... You know them. You know, they've been around a long time. Kim Carr's another, but I'm not sure he'll stay in the mix. A new face will be Christina Keneally. She'll get promoted. Uh, But there you go. And what about uh, Penny Wong um, in terms of a long-term future? She has a lot of admirers. Uh, She's obviously in the wrong chamber. She's in the Senate. She's in the wrong state uh, of South Australia. It's very hard to get to a higher leadership role. She's the leader in the Senate. Uh, You know, she's still a young woman, what do you think might be the arc of her career? Uh, you know, could she go, could she shift to the lower house? Do you think that that is anywhere inside her ambition? Oh, look, she should, um, but she won't. Uh, I mean, she's a, I think she would be a great figure as a Labor leader and, you know, potential, therefore, Prime Minister. Uh, she's got so many good qualities, but I don't I think I tweeted something uh, a few weeks back about how she'd be the ideal best candidate out of the parliament on both sides, in my view, but that's not going to happen. She's not moving to the lower house. Uh, she was even potentially not going to hang around long enough to get back into government uh, after they lost the last election, go on and do other things. But she changed her mind on that and she'd be glad she did now because she is their leader in the Senate and uh, she's, you know, got a long-term future now if they become a long-term government. And of the, uh, you know, I don't want to call them the rat bags, but of the uh, the outliers, the anti-politician politicians, who do you think will have influence? They'll, they'll have it in the Senate. Uh, who do you think at this stage are going to be the ones that they have to negotiate with whoever gets in? Well, the crossbench is going to be really interesting because the Greens will not control 
the balance of power in their own right in this next term. They might do it in the one after because more minor parties are facing re-election this time around and independence than is normally the case. The reason being uh, that because the last election was a DD election, the half that is up next time is the weaker half usually uh, and that is by definition usually the minor parties because they get a smaller quote into the vote. Now, Pauline Hanson herself isn't up but her number two position uh, is up. Uh, which is Fraser Anning, even though he obviously left the party, and Mike, Malcolm Roberts before that, when Section 44 got him. But the Greens won't, because they've got so many up this time, they won't probably hold them all, they'll probably lose some seats. What's likely to happen is both major parties are likely to do better than they normally do do in the Senate because of the disproportionate number of minors and independents that are up for re-election, but certainly not well enough to get to a majority. The Greens won't get there alone with Labor, so Labor's going to have to cobble together quite an unholy alliance, a mixture of Greens and then other elements off the crossbench that don't necessarily sit on the left of centre. The centre alliance, if they do OK, are probably their best chance joining the Greens to give Labor the numbers they need. So if Penny Wong is the leader in the Senate in a Labor Party government, if that's the way it pans out, then all her uh, considerable uh, diplomatic skills will be called upon to uh, negotiate those uh, that heavy suite of policies that they've taken to this election to see if they can get you know, a good chunk of them up. Um, PVO, what fun it's been. When we next speak, we will have numbers in our hands. A a government, we presume, will have been decided. Uh, I look forward to it, mate. Yeah, me too. It's going to be interesting. And in the meantime, uh, we'll see you on Saturday night, of course, for The Count on Channel 10. We're we're with uh, Sam Dastiari and Trent Zimmerman, Christina Keneally and the... uh, how would you describe him? The irrepressible Christopher Pine. <laughs> um, and he'll be fixing things for us. We'll have uh, fantastic coverage. We've got uh, uh, a great team there crunching the numbers as they come in. So that's it. Saturday night. Good night. Your vote. See you then. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.